Listener Production. This episode contains a trigger warning for suicide. So if this topic makes you uncomfortable, you might want to set this one out. If you or someone you know needs help, you can get support by reaching out to Lifeline on 13 11 14. I'm Action Alexa, former college American football player and wrestler turned half Ironman competitor. I've recovered from alcoholism and managed to die on the operating table four times. And now I'm a strength coach and motivational speaker. And I'm Jenna Louise, an ex-competitive gymnast and BMX racer, now a multidisciplined, high-performance athlete and coach. Over the course of our careers within the fitness industry, we've seen firsthand the impact that physical strength and mental toughness can have in changing the course of people's lives. In our podcast, How Fitness Saved My Life, we invite people to share the stories and practical skills of how they built their physical, mental and emotional fitness and how that saved them at the hardest time of their life. I used to win fights and sit backstage and uh, the guys used to come in, give me a high five, Hulk, we won, going to go and party. I just sit in the toilet and cry because I, I couldn't reach out. I couldn't say to the head coach, I'm struggling today, you know, can we have a conversation? Because I was assuming that he might turn around and say, mate, toughen up, Hulk, you're one of the modern day gladiators that hop in the octagon for a living. Following a childhood from hell, our guest today was left homeless and headed straight for trouble. Then he discovered the art of fighting and turned his life around. Soa Palele went on to become a three times mixed martial arts world champion and UFC heavyweight with a fight record that saw him taking home 82% of his wins via knockout. Soa is now an ambassador for the Make-A-Wish Foundation and White Ribbon, the 2021 winner of the Men's Health People's Choice Award and the author of Face Your Fears, where he shares his raw and powerful story about turning obstacles into opportunities and following your dreams, destroying the odds in the hope for a better life. He's the 193-centimetre, 120-kg man of steel with a heart of gold. Welcome, Soa. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to be on. But you did miss one thing, though. Oh, no. Um, the Australian, the rock of the Australia. But uh, oh. yeah, anyway, let's, let's walk. That's <laughs> another story for another part. time. How, How did we leave that, that out? That's the most oh, important, yes. Thank you. Thank you yeah, for with, picking that up, Soa. Without I the really... biceps and the, uh, and the traps that the rock has. <laughs> so I'm working on it, though. It's coming along good. So Perfect. Good to hear. And you definitely have the voice for it. So <laughs> yeah, very good fit. Exactly. Look, let's start at the beginning. Obviously, being the Australian rock, you're just a genetic anomaly in terms of athletic prowess. You played footy and basketball, but what was the first martial art that you got into? How did you get into it? Because as I understand, you also weren't really a fan of confrontation as a kid. Yeah, I wasn't really, actually. I kind of, <laughs> you know, I was uh, um, shied away from things. I always kept to myself and kind of I was very shy as a kid, you know, obviously playing rugby. But my, the first sport, I, I boxed as a kid to kind of, you know, keep fit, mm. keep health, healthy, went into the Greco and freestyle wrestling and that as well. But it's one of those things I found sport as something that helped me, you know, as a kid to kind of uh, stay out of trouble, also helped me to kind of focus. But I knew there was something else that was missing and I didn't know what it was until, you know, I kind of, you know, got to the UFC. But uh, I tried out a lot of sports, played high-level basketball and that as well, but that that didn't help me. Um, And the UFC did. Yeah, right. I mean, you have a black belt in jiu-jitsu, is that right? Yeah, third degree black belt in jiu-jitsu. I mean, yeah. that's incredible because when I lived in Hong Kong, my ex-partner over there, he used to do BJJ. And from what I saw, it seems to take absolutely years of dedication absolutely. to that sport to earn each particular belt. Can you talk us through what that journey involved and how long it took you to get mm-hmm. there? Um, I got my 
black belt after, I think after probably, you know, 12 years. Wow. Um, yeah, so I got my blue belt after three years. Wow. I think for me it was just a journey, um, just to learn more and traveled around the world to learning more from Japan to to the US, to uh, to Hawaii, where I live, you know, stayed with BJ Penn over in Hawaii. That was pretty cool, training with BJ Penn. But wow. <laughs> uh, I just traveled just to learn different arts, um, whether it's kickboxing, boxing, whether it's whatever it was. But jiu-jitsu I fell in love with because you just keep learning. And uh, to this day, I'm still learning. So, uh, but it is, a, it is a hard sport to mm. get to get graded in. But uh, yeah, something that I love doing. And so they call it pajamas, you know. Wrestling in pajamas, and back then they didn't know what. They, a lot of people didn't know that they, they thought that people were just hugging on the grounds. They didn't understand it until UFC and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu became a mainstream kind of sport. So yeah, it's funny you should say that because I remember going to a first fight, like, and when I was in Hong Kong, and I remember watching it, and we were in seats where you couldn't really see a lot that was, that was happening yep. on the ground. So all you could see is the stand-up game. So all the boxing stuff was really, really exciting. The minute I went to ground, I was kind of like, I didn't know the rules properly. Yeah. I didn't really know what was happening. I was like, oh, when are these guys going to get off the ground and stop cuddling? Because mm. that's all. Oh. It- <laughs> like, but there is so much technique there involved is, yeah. in that. There is. And and was jiu-jitsu your foundation of training? Yeah, Absolutely. You have to know the ground game because you you know at that time a lot of a lot of fighters in at the beginning of the UFC a lot of the fighters were going in there and a lot of them were boxers karate taekwondo um, so there were a lot of them were stand up fighters mm. so and then you've got the Gracies that come in that invented the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and uh, and were taking guys down but it didn't matter how big you were it's a, it, it works on technique mm. so for me it was frustrating when I first learned it and my coach at the time Habi Heskey. He was um, he was probably about ninety kilos. I was one hundred and twenty kilos, and I was I couldn't wreck my brain in a way of this guy's just choking me out and armbarring me. So mm. it's something that I wanted to learn, and I did. I learned it. I studied it. Went to Brazil and did. I just went everywhere and just kind of you know learning it and uh, and digesting it. And back then there wasn't YouTube, mm. so I had to order VHS cassette plates <laughs> oh, from, from online. So and then yeah. that will get set. I'll just pl- be playing it. Press rewind. Rewind. Press play. Yes. Rewind. Press play. Fast forward. Press play. <laughs> So, and that was, that's how I was watching it back then and learning. So. That is gold. That is gold. How, how did you get the nickname The Hulk? So, I, w- I was in Sydney and, and a friend of mine, well, he ended up becoming my manager, Peter Nicholas. He goes, Hulk, you know, you're, you're the Hulk. And I said, no, no, Peter, I don't want to do it. I want to be like the Pacific Warrior or something like that, the Tongan, <laughs> the Tongan Torpedo. And he goes, no, no, you're the Hulk. So, they ended up, you know, kind of uh, sticking with me. And oh. it's funny, it's a funny story because I was at... Uh, we started doing some ads and started doing some pretty, you know, pictures. And he goes, "We're going to do this. We're going to do that." So they painted me green, and we were doing <laughs> some something. We're doing a photo shoot at somewhere, and I was all painted green. And then I hopped in his. He goes, "You're going to have to hop in your car." I had to go to some event, so I hopped in his uh, in his Porsche. It was had no roof, and I'm sitting there green oh, with towels so that it, the green doesn't go get onto the seats. And I'm driving through on down Oxford Street, and people looking at me going, "What the." F- <laughs> It's going on. <laughs> this guy's, yeah. Oh, but, yeah, wow. Okay. Some oh, funny times. So that's how the Hulk came about. That's that, how the Hulk came up. I love it. Yeah. That I is so it. funny. I mean, yeah. speaking of the UFC, like if you were interviewing for a job, you would get asked for your CV. Yeah. Is it the same for fighting? Like do you need specific qualifications or achievements to get a break in the octagon? You just need to win. So, right. um, so there's other <laughs> events. You've got the uh, AFC. You've got you won championships. You've got other other organisations that you just need to collect the wins. And the more wins you get, the the better chances you have at the UFC looking at you and going, you know what, let's get this guy um, and sign him up. So, 
when I signed in 2007, I was at Team Quest and that was with Dan Henderson and, uh, and, and a lot of the crew there. So, yeah, that was good. Uh, I signed it and one of the first kind of UFC, uh, Australian UFC guys to come out of Australia, especially from Perth, you know, it was, it was kind of you know, a big thing. And signed a three-fight deal with the UFC and uh, and fought in Mandalay Bay in front of 20,000 people. you got millions of people watching on TV, but it was the worst performance I've ever <laughs> given. I don't know. It was bad. I don't know what happened. I, I had stage fright and uh, I can't remember. I remember after the fight, they ripped up my contract, so you're never coming back into the UFC again. That was in 2007. Wow. Come back depressed, um, sitting on the couch, um, playing a game called Halo, eating KFC, McDonald's, <laughs> cheesecakes. It was one of those things that I, I got into a slump and I found comfort and in food, and a lot of people feel find comfort in whether they sleep all day or whether they can't get out of bed, they're depressed, they get anxiety. But I found comfort in food. I blew out to about 170 kilos. Wow. And um, and I woke up one morning, I felt like I was having a heart attack, and I thought to myself, I need to change my life. And uh, number one, what do I want to do? And this is where you make goals in your life, you know, and, uh, and I made some goals, and uh, I thought, okay, I don't want to die. I want to live, and I want to get back into the UFC, so... I started training, went to a, a place called Southern CrossFit and, and the, just knocked on the door. I said, guys, my name's Solar Hulk. I know I look like Solar Bulk at the moment, but <laughs> please, can you help me get back into the UFC? And that all started then. So um, they said, give us 100% soul, we'll get you back. But it took me nine fights before I was accepted back into the UFC. They wow. told me I'm never coming back. Wow. So when you talk about resilience and when you talk about persistence, um, I didn't give up. You know, I had that goal and, yeah. that, uh, and I got there. And do you think that it took you to get to the bottom of your depths to be able to give you the drive to get you back to that point of success? Yeah, I think a lot of people have to go to rock bottom yeah. until you realise it that, uh, okay, all right, I don't want to be here. I need to do something. I need to do something pretty quickly. And I think that was something that helped me at the time because I was going through a lot of mental health problems throughout my whole career, mm. you know, depression, anxiety. And this kind of helped me focus in what I needed to do to get where I needed to get to. And this is where the whole mental health comes in. Uh, I used to win fights and sit backstage and uh, some of the, guy, the guys used to come in and give me a high five. Oh, we won. We're going to go and party. I just sit in the toilet and cry. Why? It's because I, I couldn't reach out. I couldn't chat. I couldn't say to the head coach. I'm struggling today. Can I have a, you know, can we have a conversation? Because it's funny how in life we always assume things mm. uh, in life. We assume things of what people might say. And I was assuming that he might turn around and say, mate, toughen up, Hulk. You're one of the modern day gladiators that hop in the octagon for a living. But in reality, he probably would have said, so I sit down, let's have a chat. What's going on? All right, we need to get your help. So, and I didn't ask that question because I didn't know what to expect in an answer. I was just always assuming things. So, yeah. Far out. I mean, you are doing incredible things now within the mental health space particularly. And I know firsthand how rewarding it is to go into schools and talk to kids about mental health. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and why you're so passionate about it? Um, because I think, um, you know, I, I truly believe story saves lives. And, uh, and I think that the more we share our stories, the more sa- uh, lives we save because people can relate to it. You can stand here and we can talk about, uh, you know, in 2019, this amount of uh, lives have been taken and, and, and these things. We can talk about stats, but when you start talking about what you've lived to other people that think to themselves, you know what, if so was a UFC fight, if he's spoken about it, then I can talk about it. And hopefully my story, when people hear about it, they, hopefully that encourages them and empowers them to tell their story. Yeah, and you, look, you talk so openly about uh, your childhood and I think your story really reinforces your strength of character and the resilience that you 
have had to build from a very young age. Yeah. But for our listeners out there who might not be familiar with who you are and why you do what you do, can you briefly share with us what growing up was like for you? So I was uh, born in Newcastle, New South Wales is where I was born. So um, obviously love my uh, my rugby league over in, in New South Wales, but <laughs> I was I was brought up in Tonga. Um, and then uh, I was with my mum's uh, brother where I kind of grew up. It was kind of troubled childhood, um, you know, where I grew up, you know, the physical abuse and, and, and abuse that, uh, that happened, you know, in Newcastle. But I think it's one of those things in the Tongan culture uh, or whether it's the Pacific Island culture where it kind of it's different in a way of the way we've been brought up. You know, you give you a smack, um, but you know, kind of my sm- smacks were next level kind of smacks. But it's one of those things that I took along my journey in life, and uh, one of those things I've learned to deal with. But uh, in saying that, I, I couldn't reach out, I couldn't reach out and have those kind of conversations with people. I think it's a beautiful kind of circle of life, though, in terms of that you had this incredibly traumatic childhood, which leads you to have this powerful story of lived experience. Yeah. And you often find with people with those massive stories of lived experience end up in jobs and, you know, doing projects that you're doing now. So yeah. by you sharing your experiences and going into schools, you're then teaching these kids what you wish you'd known back as a kid and giving them the support and letting them know they're not alone so that they can in turn have those conversations and educate their future generations on having conversations. And you know, that's the great thing about stories like this. Yeah, I, and I, like I said, mm. I think stories save lives, especially in, like schools is my passion to roll out mental health presentations and whether it's about bullying or, you know, whatever it is, uh, mental health and, and just getting these kids educated. So by the time they come into the big world, they understand and know how to reach out, know how to have that kind of, those kind of conversations and, know, you know, they can talk. Yeah. And this is why I'm so passionate about kids and why I want to help these kids is there was a school that I did. It was a kid sitting at the back and he had a beanie on. He had a, and he was sitting in the back drawing something. I was doing the, the presentation and I thought, I thought to myself, hang on, this kid's really rude. And I thought, he's not making any eye contact. He was sitting in the back, hoodie on, and he was just drawing something. Mm. The teacher said to me afterwards, he goes, after the presentation, this kid does not talk to anybody. He comes in, he gets teased a bit, but he just sits by himself. He just hangs by himself. After the presentation, he come up to me and, and tapped me on the shoulder. I was talking to some kids and he said to me, Hulk, can I talk to you? And I said, of course you can. So I kind of stepped outside with him and, had a, and I said, mate, are you okay? He goes, I want to tell you something, Hulk. And, uh, and he started kind of bawling up. You can see he started to kind of start crying. And he said, my mum's met this guy and he's been sexually abusing me for the last two years. And this is a kid, a year nine student, that found the courage to remove that, that wall that he had to come and have, you know, have that, that, that conversation because of my story that I tell my story to hopefully it empowers and encourage other people to tell their story. And this kid did it. And he was standing there. He was in tears. He started crying and I hugged him. Then he, he backed off, lifted up his jumper and he showed me he had cuts all over his arm. He goes, Hulk, I don't want to live anymore. I want to kill myself. I'm trying to kill myself because I don't want to be here. And I thought to myself, if I didn't come to that school oh. at that, that time and that day, who would have thought, you know, maybe six months down the track, a year, maybe less, maybe more, this kid would have suicided successfully. No one would have known what happened. And this this is how powerful these these kind of things are and why I'm so passionate about it. I did go and check up on him, make sure he was okay, like months and months and months later. And the, I walked in, he goes, Hulk, you come running out. Guess what? And I said, mate, is everything okay? And he goes, Hulk, guess what? And I said, what? He said, I've got a girlfriend. And I said, mate, that's awesome. <gasps> so I gave him a hug and we were kind of talking and uh, uh, the guy's doing seven years jail. They should have throw away 
throw oh. away the key, but uh, that's one, one life I've saved. You never know the impact that your story or you 100%. and your story can have on somebody yeah. just through your vulnerability. Yeah, 100%. Let's go back to the fact that, you know, your first foray into UFC didn't go as planned. You've had probably what is your biggest loss followed by your lowest point. You've hit rock bottom and like I know what rock bottom is like through sobriety. I know how hard it is to get off there. Yeah. You fought your way back after they told you there was absolutely no hope of you getting back in the octagon. Tell us about your first fight back because it seems like this is where it truly began for you. Yeah, I um, the week before the fight, I uh, broke a rib. But I didn't cancel the fight. So when I went over to Milwaukee, I was fighting in Milwaukee. I went and seen a, a guy named Michael Gordon. He was the doctor for the Milwaukee Bucks. And um, he said, so I, I can see by the scans here, you've got a fracture. Um, so you, just to let you know, you shouldn't fight. And I thought, geez, I've got so many people coming, coming over to watch me fight. And he goes, trust me, don't fight. And I said, is there anything you can give me? Maybe a cortisone injection, maybe a, um, some tablets, um, you know, some painkillers or something. And he goes, look, I can give you some painkillers, but that won't help. But if I give you the cortisone injection, if it breaks, some of your rib breaks, and then uh, you wouldn't even know it's broken. So and that could be not good. So then <laughs> when the, uh, not good. <laughs> no, that's not so good. I, <laughs> so I sat, sat down with it. Sat down with a, the doctor. So we're at the UFC event. We did the weigh-in and they go backstage and then the doctor's there and they're feeling like my my ribs and everything. I said, you okay? And I'm holding my oh. breath and just kind of – and I was like, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Like, yeah, and it's just feeling around. And that was really bad. And I and I thought, you know what, I had to take this. And I couldn't hardly breathe properly because if you have broken ribs, it's hard to breathe. <sighs> and I fought with it on and I thought to myself, the first round, I've just got to get – you know, put him away the first round. And, and I – Took him down, and when as I took him down, his knee hit my uh, my rib and it cracked, and I felt a, a crack on my rib. And then I thought, oh my god, I think it went downhill from there. But <laughs> I did win the fight, and uh, it was a sluggish fight because I was couldn't breathe properly. But uh, and my coach was saying, like, look, and I said to him, I'm, I can't breathe. My, my my ribs broken. I can't breathe. The refs come over and goes, mate, are you okay? And my coach goes, no, he's fine, he's fine. I was like, oh. <laughs> so then I went in and I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to throw this punch and hopefully connect, connect it anyway. Oh, and he was out. And the rest is history. So, oh, yeah, and that was it. So thank God for that. Did you go viral? Was that the fight you went viral on? Because even though it wasn't like your best performance inside the octagon, the fact that you fought yeah. through such yeah. a significant yeah. injury was like a huge testament yeah. to your strength of character. Yeah, I think they said that, um, that, you know, that was a really bad fight. Then the doctor came out <laughs> and said, no, this is this actually is his his scan. And he came and see me on the Thursday. So they went, oh, my God. And a lot of people would pull out, um, but I couldn't pull out. So um, I needed the money. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued about your thoughts about when you first step into the octagon and face your opponent. There must be so many emotions at play, especially depending on how your last fight went. Do you take your last fight into the next fight when it comes to confidence or lack thereof? I take it fight by fight, but I think it all starts at the back. You sit at the back and sometimes, and this is sometimes, I sit in the back with my phone and I'm looking at the job seeker in Perth. <laughs> And I'm looking and goes, man, is there a nine to five job? I'm looking for nine to, nine to five job. Stop. It's something easier than what I'm doing now. And, um, and, then, and then it's like when the curtains open, you're about to walk out and the people start screaming and then you just go, okay, I'm, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, you get in there, they shut the gate, you're in there with the other guy and again, it's just me and you, bro. So someone's going to have to go. It's like the modern day gladiators, they're hopping the octagon for a living and it's like, wow, okay, someone's going to, someone has to win. So... Oh. Wow. And are you visualising yeah, anything at this yeah. point? 
Yeah. So I met these Russians um, many, many years ago, <laughs> Russian wrestlers, and they gave me these these glasses. And these glasses, you put them on and there's flashing lights in them and there's, you put the headphones on so there's music playing. So that's a distraction. The flashing lights is a distraction. And then they tell you to visualise worst case scenarios. So I was using this before fights. So I was using it probably about four weeks before the fight. So every night I'd put it on. 10 minutes, I'd go worst case scenarios. And then the, the week before the fight, I'll go best, you know, good scenarios. So let's say if he hits me and I hit the ground, I've already kind of thought about it in my mind. I've already visualized it. So when I hit the ground, I'm back up on my feet. So oh. if I get into the worst case scenarios and they taught me that and I was like, they're so clever. But yeah, that was, that was pretty, oh and, and I, I used that thing. Visualization is a big part of fighting for me. So it's so funny because I was just about to say like that is so opposite to everything you get taught yes. about visualization in terms of a positive outcome, but yeah. it makes so, so much, much sense, sense that you've yeah. already processed yeah. a worst case and then got yourself out of it. It's like getting yourself yeah. out of a bad dream. You've already yeah. navigated yeah. your way out so you know exactly what to do in that moment. That's yeah. so incredibly yeah. cool. On that note, let's talk training because mm. yep. your sport is brutal. Yeah. You have a knockout rate of 82%. So 18 out of your 22 wins were a KO. I went on Google and I actually pulled some fun facts about like some stats in the UFC. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you know this. I mean, you probably do. But the hardest punch in the world belongs to a UFC heavyweight champ. Yeah, Francis Nagano. That's the one. Yeah. He recorded a striking power of 129,161 units. So Dana White said that that is equivalent to being hit by a Ford Escort. I don't know why it's yeah. Ford, Ford Escort. Escort. <laughs> going as fast as it can go. That's insane. That is crazy. Yeah. What's your power? I don't know. Oh. I don't know. Can we measure I it? But, <laughs> I want to measure but, it. But I do know. That, uh, but I do know. I, so obviously my hot, the, the name, the Hulk. So if I'm on top of you, I'm kind of raining down punches. So that's, you're not going anywhere. And I use my jujitsu to, you will not escape. Like if I'm on top, I, you know, you can't escape because I've got you. Then I just start hitting him. And if you watch my fights, you'll see me kind of, you know, Bruce Buffer will be announcing my, my name. So will the Hulk from Perth, Western Australia. And I'll be pacing up and down on the side looking at my opponent. The, the opponent wasn't, uh, was never the person I was fighting. It was also my the demons, the demons that I was fighting, my the person that hurt me as a, as a kid. So that used to enrage me. It used to be, fire me up. I'm ready to rock and roll. So I don't think about the person I'm fighting. Huh. And if you actually watch the fight, I just go hammer and tongs. So it just takes me into another world. Wow. And then the ref has pulled me off and I'm thinking, oh, geez, okay. And I'm looking at the guy and I think, oh, man, I'm sorry, bro. Oh. And that's all. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't – it's like a blank out. And, um, yeah, it's really weird that I that – It I, works that, in your favour. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's like whatever he does, he can't, like, you know, get away anyway. Wow. So just to Brutal. clarify here, so – your opponent, you're visualizing your opponent as the guy that hurt you as a child. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And that's even when I look across the arena, that's the, the, the face that I see. It's not the face that I, and, I, and it kind of really fires me up. And I, and I look across and I'm thinking to myself, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> let's go. I'm ready to rock and roll. So, and I just hunt him and I will just hunt him. And if you see some of the fights, oh. I think the fights that I have wow. lost is is mentally. Like I wake up that day and I'm not mentally good. Yeah, because I was dealing with a lot of lot of things going out through through you know through my life and career. Look, we know that you guys train incredibly hard to be fit. Yeah. 
But what about when it comes to taking hits? Is there any way that you can train for that? No. Like, how do you become hit fit? <laughs> like, you think you crazy. My, my sparring partners were Mark Hunt and Bam Bam Tui Oh, Vasa. my God. So, yeah, cool. And, and every time I, fought, I, I used to spar them guys, I wouldn't even waste time and I would grapple them straight away, take them down mm. because them guys can hit. And even Ty's ripping through the heavyweight division now. They've got power. And when I talk about power, I'd hate to see what Mark Hunt's power is in, when he punches because he's got unbelievable yeah. power. So Yeah, right. So it's really training to learn how to dodge punches. Yeah. Wow, that's it. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, you look at those guys now. I mean, you guys are all massive fellas. <laughs> yeah. Do you look at your training, like your training then compared to what you know now in terms of the training and the guys coming through the ranks? Yeah. Is it completely different? Like do you look at the training now and go, oh, if I could have my time back again, I would change things? Yeah, 100%. Like I would change my training now to what I was training before because mm. I'd, I'd, I'd spend probably seven hours a day on just training, training, training. A lot of that's all wear and tear. Now, if I was to train now, it would be 45 minutes, smash it and get out wow. and, that, so, and just save my body. And I wouldn't be sparring as much as I used to. I'd be sparring maybe twice a week maybe. Mm. Yeah, it's just things that have evolved along the years have, you know, for myself, I think, Train smarter, not not. You can train hard, but you know, train smarter, especially when you're kind of continuously. If you're punching to the head, you know that does rock the head. So if and that's inspiring. So and then when you fight, fights are easy bit. You get in there, fight can end up in in, in a minute or end up in in the second round or third round. So, but just just training smarter. And what would be your ideal training day? What would that look like? So AKA is a, a training um, facility over in America and um, they have another one in Thailand. I used to go to the one in Thailand and those camps are ridiculous. I used to get up, train, come home, sleep during the day yeah. and then get up, train in the afternoon, come home, sleep. Just ridiculous. Um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning, it would be sparring and there'll be like five rounds of five minutes. Every minute some, if someone comes in new, <laughs> one minute rest. So you're wrestling, kickboxing, you're boxing. Um, and then you've got uh, at nighttime on Monday, Wednesday, Wednesday, Friday, you've got the air dine circuit and that's a killer. So that's <laughs> oh. like a 30, 30 minute doing an air dine and you're sprinting on air dine. Then you hop off, you're wrestling back oh, onto air dine. My then, you're doing, then you're doing wow. pads. Then you're doing back on the air dine. Then you're doing trying to escape from the underground. So that's 30 minutes of nonstop. So they mimic that as your 25 minutes in the UFC yeah. for the five rounds. So, so is that three days a week, did you say? So three days a week and then oh Tuesdays, my gosh. Wednesdays <laughs> and Saturdays is the wrestling. So you do 10 <sighs> rounds of five minutes wrestling on Tuesday and Thursday mornings and then you've got the hill sprints. And in Thailand, those hill sprints are huge. Wow. I mean, look, obviously every opponent that you face in the ring has a different strategy and a different strength. Like you, your ground game being a, like BJJ black belt is incredible, but you've got so many wins via knockout. Is a fighter's strength or their strategy something that you specifically prepare for before going into a fight? Like if, if you were fighting someone who is an incredible boxer or an incredible kickboxer, would that change the way that you train going into a fight? Absolutely. I, my coaches do their, their work. They go do their study and, and, uh, and study my opponent. And then we'll uh, sit down and go through their weaknesses, their strengths, and um, whether if they're a boxer, obviously, and they're a little bit of ground, then obviously we want to take them down. So at the end of the day, with myself and my strategy behind everything, if I'm fighting a boxer, why would I want mm. to stand up with him you know, and t just take him down? You know, because at any stage, especially with them MMA, you could get hit. You can, you know, 
get knocked out. So my thing would be to kind of smother him and, and, and close the distance pretty quickly and take him, take him to the ground. So if I was fighting a, a wrestler, a really good wrestler, my, my thing would be kind of to step, you know, even though my ground would be good, is to step out and obviously his hands are not good and, and as soon as he, he, he comes in and time that uppercut or that knee yeah. as he goes to do that takedown. So, so different things for different uh-huh. people. Mm. It's a matter of just putting a game plan and that's when you when you watch it, you actually see the cornerman, you know, calling out for strategies. And that's a strategy that they have put together against the opponent. The opponent that's in there has to take what they, what he hears and uh, obviously take it and he might not be able to hear or he might be able to hear it and go in with that strategy. And they'll bring in special people. Mm. So if you're fighting a boxer, they'll bring in boxers for you to spar in and you, for you to take them down. They'll, if they're a wrestler, they'll bring in wrestlers. So you've got to adjust your opponent's for your training opponents to who you're fighting. So, yeah. Yeah, right. I've always thought about that, actually, that your opponent hears what your corner is saying. Yeah. Like how, mm. so they it's almost like they know what's coming. Yeah, yeah. So how do you get around, you can't get around it because they, they can hear. Yeah, that you can. And that's I get, that's a good thing if you if if you're, you're sort not, of giving giving away your game plan before you even yeah, do it. If you if you don't speak English and you don't even understand yeah. what they're actually saying, but but yeah, but it's it's kind of you you've just got to kind of think of you know if I'm in that position, even though I'm hearing things or what's going coming in, I take it in, but yeah. I'm the one in there. So if it doesn't work for me or what they're saying, then I've got to go go to a second thing. So if second phase, they go first, second, third phases. You'll see them a lot where they go hit first phase, it goes second phase, second phase, ah. and then you'll go. So this is some people, oh. and they're smart. They're smarter trainers than that as well. They'll go through kind of you will hear them scream out, but it's um, but it's funny. That's really clever. That is clever. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like having plays in American football, yeah. yes. where the other team doesn't know what the specific plays are, but you're calling them out yeah. anyway. Yeah. Like when you look at fights, you kind of you're in the moment. You're like, yeah, go, and they're hitting all these punches and and whatever it is. But it's such a game of strategy. Mm. Yep. You know, like, I was never good at that sort of stuff. I just want to hit and hit hard and, you know, hopefully I would get the KO in the first round because I wouldn't yeah. know what to do next. Whereas, like, it's yeah. almost like chess. You need to know, when I do this, this guy's going to do this. Yeah. And when I do this, he's going to move over there. You had a boxing fight, didn't you? I did. And it okay. obviously did not go very well because my nose is on the left-hand side now. Yeah. So let's not talk about my fight. I was no. not good with my strategy. <laughs> but what I, what I did get from that is like I kind of had a plan and I thought I knew how it was going to play out and then I was so freaking tired that when I sat down after the first round and all the adrenaline of actually getting in the fight because you're so pumped up you get in the ring you're pumped up like yeah and then you go through I only had like two or three minutes and I sat down and went holy mother of god like how am I going to get back up again because not only have you you've been yeah you've been hit you're jumping around and your adrenaline's run off so then what happens yeah, so I talk, I talk a lot of fighters that do that. I tell them to, to relax in the first round mm. and just feel it out, move. You still got three, you got three rounds. And mm. then that, once you get that feel for that first round and then you're kind of relaxed, it gets you into that second round. Otherwise, you'd just be pushing. It'd be hard. It's just a long <laughs> night for you. And that's so, and then the second round yeah. and then you can step it up again and then, you know, just, but you just got to fight smart. It's just about fighting smarter, you know. It's a chess game, right? You're trying to outsmart smart the other fighter. So, mm. Um, but just getting that distance, distance is very important. Did you ever do post-fight analysis and sit down and break down where your strategy went awry, what you did or didn't do that you were meant to, or specific weaknesses that came out of the fight that you could improve on for the next one? Yeah, I did. But if I won, then it's, you know, you sit down and kind of go, okay, and go through it. The coaches do their job and then go through it and they'll sit down and go through it with me and they brief me after it and we'll, we'll talk about it. If I lose, then I'll go and cry a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you retired from fighting professionally in 2015. Yep. What was the catalyst for that? I think I've done it. I've had enough. Mm. Yeah, right. I just had to weigh things up um, in life. Yep. And I think the sacrifice that I was making, you know, away from Perth and, and just getting a normal job, I guess, but just kind of, you know, setting up my future because I wasn't going to fight for the rest of my life. Mm. But it was also, I didn't have to prove anything else to anyone because I've already gone through what I needed to get through. And mental health-wise, I remember kind of, you know, and this is this whole suicide attempt for myself that happened when uh, my oldest daughter saved my life. And, um, you know, I woke up one morning and uh, I, and it was in tears when I got up. And that day I kind of woke up and, and I was struggling. And um, I, had, I was in tears and I, that's the day I decided to take my life. And uh, there, was, there was stuff that happened that day that, uh, you know, where signs and stuff where I was going and, you know, goodbyes and stuff like that. People didn't know I was saying goodbye, but and that's when I was about to take my life um, with a phone in my hand about to send my oldest daughters a text message and, uh, and and say goodbye. Not to tell them that I was what I was about to do, but just tell them that I'm sorry for letting him down. And uh, it's one of those powerful moments that, uh, you know, my oldest daughter replied back with a text message because I was about to throw my phone on the ground and um, and I was about to take my life. And within 10 seconds, my oldest daughter replied back with a text message. If it was one minute later, I wouldn't be sitting here, sitting here doing this podcast with you. Um, and, uh, and she said, oh, I love you too, Dad. She said, and her other reply was, can you take me to a party tonight? And I, and I, and I laughed. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was standing going, oh, and I kind of laughed and I thought to myself, what the hell am I doing? It's like someone just slapped me and I just woken up. And then that made me realise that if I, I talk about time... And, uh, and, I, and I preach this a lot, that time out time. Like you can never get time back, right? And it's one of those things as my kids grow up, a lot of the, I've missed my girls kind of, you know, growing up and, um, and I, I won't do that with my son, but uh, because I understand now, it's those kind of times, important times that uh, to be there for them. So how we use our time now is to make good choices and make the right choices to make sure that the people that you love, you put the time in, to the people you love because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's so they could be there or, or or not. So it's the most important thing. Oh, you know, speaking of time and time healing, yeah. you spent so much of your life envisioning this guy that hurt you as a kid mm-hmm. every time you got in the octagon. When you finished fighting, had you resolved that? Like did that allow you to get the closure that you needed? Um, I think the my thing was to face face your fears, face that person, which I did. I went and faced that person, and uh, and he and when I did walk in, I, I was th- I thought I was ready for a fight, and uh, I walked in, and uh, and he he was in tears, and he got up and walked over, and he said, "I'm sorry," and then uh, it was the first time in life in my life that I thought, "Oh, geez," and he was crying, and then I was I, I started crying, and we hugged, and and uh, and I, I thought to myself, "You can't hurt me anymore because I'm the UFC fighter." And I kind of thought, geez, I, I think so much lifted off my shoulders. But that's one thing that when I got in the car and I was in tears and I, and I drove back is one thing that, you know, a lot of people cannot forgive. But I had to forgive to move forward in my life and, and this was something um, that helped me kind of move forward in my life. And, uh, and that's so I'm thankful and I'm grateful every day that, um, that I'm alive basically because it was, it was a close, it was nearly close. <laughs> So, yeah. It's not often that I'm left speechless, but I am yeah. no. actually speechless. Far <laughs> out. I think the UFC has saved my life. Mm. It helped me with what I was going through at that time, even though it was a band-aid of what I was going through at the time. But uh, it helped me get 
through what I was going through, you know, the depression, anxiety, and also, um, you know, the suicide attempts that I've, I've gone through as well. So, um, but that kind of helped me and that as well. But I understand that one day, you know, eventually uh, if I didn't reach out and have those kind of conversations, I, uh, I was going to be probably, you know, take my own life, and uh, which I nearly did. So, mm. I love that your work now, you know, with Strong Minds, Strong Minds, you've said for so much of your life that training was like therapy for you. It was like a Band-Aid. Yeah. And the program that you're involved with now, it really reinforces, you know, that connection, I guess, between feeling physically strong and thinking yep. strong thoughts, which is something I live by. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with that project? Yeah, so what we do, so we book programs together um, like any other kind of a mental health company and, and we roll out eight-month programs, roll out leaders training, but we combine the, phys- the physical fitness aspect and the social as well with the program and that um, it's more educating you know, educating and directing them to the right support services, um, whether it's in the mind site, whether it's corporate, whether it's uh, at schools, and just getting out there, talking and just getting people to have their conversation and that as well. And the, and the mining, and you know, because you've been mm. to the sites, they're hard, you know, whether it's the underground surface and, um, you know, they're isolated, they're away from their families, especially COVID. We were so, so flat out that uh, people were getting stuck on, on mine sites isolated, away from their families, haven't seen their families for a year or so, you know, closed down businesses and it's crazy that what was going on at that time. But, uh, but yeah, then that's what we do. We just, we're there to support and uh, we'll continue to do that. I think the more people that do it, the more companies, the more voices that, that get out there and do it, the better we'll be as, as an industry. But it is hard in a way for, for myself because I do travel a lot. And I do get drained when, you, when you're telling your story and I've heard your, your story yeah. as well, Alex. It's like it's, it's draining and then I, um, I have to, you know, refocus and I have to hit the, either hit the gym or, or talk to somebody I have and that's a, a clinical psychologist as well to kind of debrief and then I'm ready to rock and roll. So, mm. but yeah. I love that, that you've done the whole like, it's kind of like the normalised therapy yeah. thing, which is something that yeah. I talk about a lot. Like I remember when I was going through a really rough time and the – you know, I was very hesitant about going to see a therapist because, you know, there's that whole stigma around it and it was yeah. even worse back then, but it was probably one of the best things that I've ever done. And, you know, when I go into schools now, I talk about self-care, including going to therapy and talking to people and how helpful that was. Mm. Yeah. So, Soa, what's next? What's next on the cards for Soa? Oh, um, we've got a few movies coming up. So, oh. we've got, uh, yeah, we've got a film coming out and we'll go to cinemas in October. Stop. So, and that's uh, a movie called Avarice, so, and that's something that we worked on. Um, oh, did you do all your own I'm stunts? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I was going to say, I don't know who they'd get to play you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what did you double funny. for The Rock? Is this where this is going? <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> no, you can't talk about that one yet. <laughs> yeah, but no, but they, they've got that one and we've got a few others um, <sighs> and so as well, so, so that's pretty cool. I'm just banging out movies. Yeah. How good. So, look, you have had the most incredible journey what would you say to other people out there who might be having a bit of a rough time right now? We've come off the back of a couple of really challenging years. What would be yep. your biggest piece of advice? Just um, get up and, and do what you can to keep moving forward and be positive every day. You know, a lot of people that, uh, when I ask them the question, you know, what are you, what are you looking forward to in life? Or what are you doing in, in life? And, uh, and they don't even know. So make a plan is really good. Put set some goals um, is important. And once you, once you, whether you have to write it on a board or whiteboard and write some goals and where you want to be in the next kind of six months to a year, whether you, you know, be positive. And that's, and I know it's sometimes hard that, you know, you know, things aren't going your way, but 
you just got to keep positive and uh, and things will turn around um, and keep grinding and hustling. Hustle and grind all day, every day. Hustle and grind. I love it. I know. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Soa. You're an absolute legend. You absolutely are. Now go forth and conquer and give those kids a hug. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. How Fitness Saved My Life is hosted by me, Action Alexa. And me, Jenna Louise. Producer, Tina Madelov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. And executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.